You're listening to Build for Impact, brought to you by MarketScale, with your host, Daniel Hewitt. Hi, everyone. This is Daniel Heward, uh, your host on Build for Impact. And today I'm joined by the super fabulous Eric Corey Freed. Uh, Eric is uh, a longtime friend, uh, collaborator. We've uh, worked on a bunch of stuff together. But I guess most importantly, Eric is another lead fellow, uh, really uh, established architect. He is a uh, award-winning architect. Um, the founder of Organic Architect, a visionary design leader in biophilic and regenerative design, who is currently the senior vice president of sustainability for Canon Design, an international uh, design firm uh, where he specializes uh, and leads their efforts in healthcare, education, uh, and commercial projects towards uh, better and higher performing buildings. Uh, working on over 15 million square feet per year. So, um, Eric, I'm going to hand the floor off to you so that you can say hello to our guests. Oh, gosh. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for having me. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. So um, I guess we'll, we'll jump right into it. Um, you know, some of the, the past stuff that Eric's done is included things like eco-districts. He was a, a former vice president at the International Living Future Institute. Um, and, and really, I, I think we'll double back all the way to our initial collaborative efforts uh, with USGBC and uh, talk about sustainability first. In, in really, you know, my pillars uh, are sustainability, um, resiliency, material transparency, and, and wellness. And, and Eric, uh, in a previous discussion, brought up something else that we, we also need to consider. So we'll kick this off uh, with uh, sustainability. And Eric, your thoughts on, on what we're doing right, what additional uh, we need to do. It's funny because my, my feelings on sustainability have been evolving for probably my entire 30, 30 year career. And, and I, and I, I think in part that's by design. I want to always be looking at it in a new way and growing and, and thinking of it in a new way. But in another sense, I also think the field itself has changed and will continue to change. And, you know, in one sense, I think my mindset today is, is very much one of uh, triage where the climate crisis is, is uh, already upon us. It's going to get much worse. We haven't done enough. We've squandered our time. And now I don't need every building to be perfect. And, and I think that's evident in my daily work with, you know, when I'm looking at a building at this point, I'm targeting just the steel, concrete, and aluminum because I know just doing that will get, get me to 80, 80 or 85% of, of the embodied carbon in the building. When I'm looking at net zero energy, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm at the point where I know where the real pain points are and I'm willing to sacrifice a few watts here or there for the, for the greater good because I'm in this triage mentality. It's almost, it's almost like being on, remember that old TV show, MASH? It's kind, of, it's kind of like, kind of like that where the patient's about to die. Let's just, you know, we can't, let's forget about all the fancy stuff. Let's just, let's just, let's just get to survive. And uh, it's unfortunate to kind of, be that grim about it but um but i i think that's where my head is at right now and i and i think a lot of my colleagues heads are there too 
I, I think that, you know, uh, interjecting, I think that, you know, the situation that we're in with the, you know, our response to the pandemic and being in the middle of, of dealing with the pandemic certainly um, moves us to to look at that and uh, in, in consider it. You know, it's how do you how do you not be comprehensive and how do you ignore that? And, and really, I think you touched down on some key elements of um, of resilience uh, as well. You know, the uh, my my second pillar, if you will, um, on how you know how do you do the 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 best good? You know, we're not saying uh, we're doing the greater good, not the greatest good. Um, and I think that the the fact that we're always doing, um, you know, we're working towards comprehensive solutions, but you know, some of the challenges we have. Are, are making those concessions uh, at times. You know, right now we're in that example of what do you do to ensure, you know, the, the, you've done as much as you ultimately can do um, for air quality. And, and you know, what are you, what's your response there? But you also touched down on the climate crisis, and uh, I think that's key to what we need to do to address resiliency. Um, your, you know, what do you, what do you think on that one? It's interesting because resiliency is is something that I, I feel like I I had a crash course in when I first when I was at Living Future, obviously, because it's built into Living Building Challenge and, and even our approach to things, but really came to the forefront at e when I went over to Eco Districts as their chief community officer. Uh, well, in, in in one sense, because it's one of their three pillars, it's it's climate equity and resilience, and as as uh, Rob Bennett, who's the CEO of Eco Districts and just a, a brilliant guy, said, you, you can't really have one without the other. You kind of need all three. But this pandemic has also changed our approach to resilience because, you know, as, as much as I've done dozens of these workshops where I go into communities and we're talking about floods and hurricanes and wildfires, I have to say, probably nobody had global pandemic on their bingo card as one of the potential stressors or shocks that, that could disrupt things including me. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it's reinvigorated those discussions around resilience in a new way. In fact, one that keeps coming up recently, instead of resilience, is uh, future-proofing. Almost as a, how do we future-proof this building? How do, we, how do we kind of anticipate the possible, the many possible futures that, that we could foresee? And then, and then we're getting into scenario planning and, and doing some really cool strategic, big picture thinking stuff that goes well beyond that one building and really starts to talk about, you know, if I'm designing a building for a university campus, it really gets involved with the university as a whole. If I'm designing a, a, a medical office building, it, it really talks about the, the healthcare system uh, as a whole. And, and so it's, I think, I think, if anything, resilience is a gateway to get into the C-suite decision makers and have them in on these discussions. I, th I think you touched down on on something that ends up being a key failure with using a first cost theory uh, of going about designing and building buildings, and and when you do that, you might have the you know the best deal that you've managed to make on the, on a first cost basis effective today, but it's lacked vision for the future. And, and you know you shared the the impact of the C suite. Once we get to share with them what what the eventuality is of the good decisions that we're we're trying to encourage them to make 
then hopefully they're, you know, vision enough to see where the benefits of that can happen. And, you know, in a, in a discussion you and I had uh, earlier this, this week, in fact, uh, you know, we talked about another thing that, uh, you know, that this pandemic has potentially brought about, in it, and that's, uh, you know, an, an updated version of uh, our focus on, on equity. And, you know, and I shared that I, I thought that we were uh, always, us, and I'm including you and I in, in our peers in the green building world, we're, we've been very cognizant about uh, equity, but, you know, maybe not vocal enough about it. Uh, and, and I really feel that equity is a part of, uh, of resilience, um, you know, because you, you have to uh, work as, as one. Um, and, and you elaborated really well on that. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give the floor back to you to share <laughs> some of your thoughts on that one. I did. I, sometimes, sometimes I have... Uh spells where I'm suddenly very insightful, but, but then it goes away and I'm back to normal. But, but let's, uh, you know, the, the, the really way I'm thinking about it now is if it's not, if this, if ultimately we design the most beautiful building in the world and it is, it is inequitable, how can it really be considered beautiful? And if it's not beautiful, how can it be considered sustainable? And so in a very real sense, I, I feel that it begins and ends with equity and the, the, the strangest part of that is it's probably the area that I know the least about, to be honest with you. I'm an architect. I, I understand bricks and <laughs> concrete and metal and things like that. You know, I'm a you know, materials guy. Uh, but this has probably been the most fascinating to me. And I, and I think where our whole system's approach to design thinking could really improve the quality of that discussion. Because let's face it, for... For decades, the equity discussion was nothing. There was no discussion. And now just the fact of me bringing it up is already an improvement. But we are having some interesting, difficult, awkward, stressful, but important conversations. And I think part of the way I'm doing this is, you know, when I started at Eco Districts, Rob pulled me aside and he said, you have to go into this work with great humility. And he said, you can't just make it the Eric show. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I hear you, I, I, I get you, I, I'm, you know, I'm totally there. And he was, he was right. I mean, and, you know, I, I've facilitated these workshops where I've gone in and I've acknowledged this. You know, I'm fully aware that I am the only white male here in the room. I am fully aware that we are going to have discussion around equity. I am fully aware that it is going to be awkward and uncomfortable for everybody, including me. And I'm starting that as our, as our basis of point because let's put it all out there and have these discussions. And that transparency has made for some of the most beautiful discussions I've, I've probably had in my career in a, in a workshop. And it's, it's been enlightening and education and humbling, for lack of a better word, but also just fascinating. You know, I, I, I felt like there was a huge blind spot that the construction and architecture industry has had for this. And I, and I was certainly, you know, perpetuating that just out of ignorance. And, and, you know, the last 10 years of my career have been really an education in that. And I, and I do take it humbly because unlike a brick, I can't say that I, I'm an expert in it. I'm, I'm learning just as everybody else is. And now we're at a period in our in our culture where you're seeing the entire country going through its own 
growth and learning process. And it's, in one sense, I'm hoping that, it, that out the other side of this is, um, is really some great, um, great changes and, and fundamental re-understandings of, of how we can be more equitable to each other. I would say that one of your best talents, my friend, is is listening uh, and always seeking to collaborate. Um, you know, what what we ultimately need to do is work together to find solutions. You know, we can't we can't be, as you said, standalone. Um, you know, it, it takes more than one to to make things work. And I really like the fact that you know we've had a lot of people in in our sphere, uh, if you will working towards solutions for for quite a while and uh you know and looking to get there i you know i'd mentioned in a, a again previously i think per, perhaps on this build for impact um you know to to go back to the point um that i'm i'm native american and if i'm in a uh you know in a wouldn't i wouldn't attempt to be in a confrontation with a with a law enforcement officer but if I'm in a in a discussion with them that that is at all heated, I'm two point four times more likely to be shot than your old white guy, uh, and, and that's just just not right. You know, so there's some fundamental flaws with you know with that. I'm not saying I'm opposed to law enforcement. I'm just saying that you know we really need to be uh, as a society more cognizant. Uh, one of the other things you touched down on uh, around resiliency was, uh, you know, planning for the future, you know, future-proofing. And I really think that Canada um, just took a really big step in the right direction. And, and I talked to another colleague about this just recently. They're, they're required to, in their planning documents, to show proof of resiliency planning. Uh, that, that, you know, their project isn't first-cost basis, that it's going to have some longevity to it, to stick around. Um, and, and uh, you know, and be responsible. I think the other area, um, you know, another pillar of mine, and the other area of of what we do uh, that's gaining more prominence, and in in the good news is it's uh, it's gaining more traction, is uh, material transparency. Uh, and and in that regard, I know you've worked uh, a lot on on stuff related to carbon impact, and you know, associated to the other aspects of material transparency. Um, share some thoughts with, with our listeners. Well, it's interesting. I, I, had a, um, I had a call just today with this group of PhD students in, at um, University of North Carolina who are working on a very interesting, um, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about it, but a very interesting new facade system that potentially absorbs CO2 and generates energy. That's probably the easiest way to say it. And and they, their, their literal question to me was, how do we get people excited about indoor air quality? And I said, you, you don't. You're not going to sell indoor air quality. First of all, nobody really understands what it is except nerds like me. And secondly, they, they, it's invisible to them, right? It's not, like, it's not like drinking water where I can make them care about it because they, they're, they're picking up a glass several times a day. Don't sell them on indoor air quality. Sell them on the benefits that indoor air quality gives you that gets them excited, uh, and so, and that's what I've instructed everybody at Canada to do. I said, stop selling leads, stop selling these solutions, and really start with why. You know, I, I really, really quoting that Simon Sinek book, "Start with Why." 
uh, but really start, you know, lead with benefit. And, and so we've mapped out these 10 major health outcomes that we do on, really we're targeting on every project. And it's, it's really been kind of interesting because on the one hand, I can show you how to reduce employee absenteeism, improve employee health, increase their mood and feeling of well-being, and certainly improve productivity, increase their employee engagement, reduce their stress levels, reduce fatigue, restore their mental acuity. That's in an office. In a school, I can improve test scores. And so it's kind of ridiculous of, of the idea that I'm going to go in and, and, and kind of sell something that's once removed from that and say, hey, do you want good indoor air quality? They're not going to they're not going to get it. But if I can say, hey, do you want to improve your student test scores? They'll be like, oh, yeah, me want that. And, and if I can bake these outcomes in in the kickoff meeting, and before, even before we get the project, but bake them in in the interview, not only will they get excited, not only will it open up opportunities for engagement, but then those things don't get value engineered out. They don't get kicked out because of budget. Those become the driving factors for, for, the, um, for the project. And I really, I call this, it's an innovation change management strategy uh, centered on outcomes. That's really what I'm doing, you know, through a, a, a really big architecture firm with, you know, 1,200 employees across 20 offices. I mean, that's, that's how I'm doing it, is I'm getting everybody to sell outcome, not, 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 the, not the how. The how is up to us. I, I think you hit on something really valid, and, and for our listenership, many who are in the green building world, some who are interested in it, we do a, an owner's project requirements uh, at, at the inception, which is sort of informed from what we do at a charrette, trying to find out what it is we need, uh, what the program needs to be, what what are some of the basis stuff, and, and really, um, you know, sadly, we don't look at those outcomes that, that we really want. Uh, and use that as as a as an initial point, um, you know, to get to great to get great stuff. And you know, I remember working on a project that we also did a a, a study on, where we did four, you know, we took an existing building, an existing office space, we took four uh, energy efficiency measures that that we included in it. Um, in one was around air quality, one was around uh, you know better lighting, and you know the increased output of the of the the staff averaged almost $16,000 per year so when you look at that increased output compared to the cost of doing the improvements that ROI shot through the roof and when i say shot through the roof instead of you thinking that it, your payback was going to happen in 4 years we're talking a payback in months and and those are really outcomes based on improving the quality uh, of you know of somebody's environment so that they can they can be optimal and it's not always about you know their productivity we talked about test scores and and I think the the big thing in material transparency that that we're seeing is uh, is you know health and in the last pillar wellness and uh, you know it's really important to look at what goes into the building and how that affects the end user is it healthy for the end user right and, and i'm going to do a shameless plug right now <laughs> for global green tags uh product health declaration the phd which just got recognized globally in lead uh, version 4 and 4.1 on the 10th of july 
and, and one of the key things it does, in addition to satisfying the credit requirements, is it lets people know how healthy the product is, you know, in use for the for the final user, for the occupant. Um, and, and that's one of the things that drew me to, you know, working with that organization, is they cared about the, the uh, end result, uh, not the dollars and cents, uh, of course, that's pragmatic, but the end result. And, and um, you know, your thoughts on, on other successes in, in material transparency? Well, it's interesting because I, I you know, in, in one sense, this is something everybody wants. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I've ever had a client who's like, yeah, make the make the building more toxic. <laughs> that, doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen. Um, I mean, there was that one time when I did a project for Enron, but that was they were evil. But uh, <laughs> but but, you know, this I, this is something that we all agree on. This isn't even solar panels, which, you know, I, I would would always think would be such an easy win, but it would get shot down all the time. But this you're talking about, let's just improve health is who's who's against that. The, the trouble is, is how we talk about these things is 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 weird. And, you know, I've you and I have a lot of I'm not going to name any names, but we have a lot of really smart friends who are, you know, they're architects, they're in the green building space and they're absolute crap at talking about this with their clients because they immediately go deep and technical because that's what gets them excited. and. And I think what I've always advocated for as someone who's, you know, lectured to hundreds of thousands of people around the world is, is um, let's focus on what they care about. So, you know, that's part of the reason why I, I'm really listening. I'm really asking uh, uh, provocation type questions. I'm asking the questions that nobody's asking because I want to hear that bit. And when it comes to material health, I'm not selling them on, you know, VOCs, formaldehyde, phthalates, you know, that's, that's the how, and if they want to get into that, fine. But I'm selling them on the benefits it brings because, frankly, it is stupid that in the 21st century, with everything that we know, that we're able to measure air down to the parts per billion, that we're still even allowing carcinogenic materials into a building full stop. And it, it's insanity. But because it's normal or because it's acceptable, or because it's just the way we've always done it. That's those are the excuses we give, and I, and that's where I draw the line. And I, as much as I'm known for being on stage and telling jokes, I, when I'm in when I'm in the conference room with the clients, I get very serious about this, because they're, you know, for lack of a better word, killing their staff, killing their students, killing their guests, killing their customers, very slowly, just through ignorance. And so having a material health conversation to me is nothing but opportunity. We're making a better building. We're making a better experience, and we can do it with the most easy things. There are 20 main ingredients that go into almost every building that if you just pick better, uh, you could drastically improve the quality of, of you know, the chemical exposure you know, <laughs> that, that normally you get. And, and, you know, and luckily, we have tools like yours that, that enable that to happen. Um, and so you know, a large part of my job as kind of the worldwide director of sustainability is teaching teaching my really smart colleagues how to talk about this in a different way and reframing the argument. Thank you for that. You know, I've always been, a, in my bio even shares it, that I'm a lifelong learning proponent. Um, in, in really, if we want to be professionals, we have to be open to learning more. 
in, in, and not stop learning. And I really enjoy the fact that you and I have traveled the planet, um, you know, advocating for people to just open their eyes, listen for a few moments. And, and we're also really big uh, proponents of you've got something you feel great and passionate about that you want to share that's going to improve people's lives in the built environment. I'm all ears. Go ahead. You know, so it goes it goes both ways. The dialogue works really well. And uh, I, I think the approach that you just shared is one of the key things that we do. You know, um, I, I'm faculty with the Emerge Leadership Project, and uh, it, it's one of those things where we look at trying to empower somebody else to find their inner leader uh, inside them and, and help them promote it. And, you know, we do that succession planning and get out of the way. And, and go on to help others uh, in in the process and not feel bad about walking away from from uh, you know from something where we've we've seen the impact that we've made uh, and and we're opening our our eyes and ears and minds to new challenges uh, you know so again really great to uh, to have you on the program uh, because you very similarly have have done a great deal of that let's let's uh, um, move on to our, our last pillar in, in wellness, because we've sort of touched down on it um, with the resiliency portion of it. We've certainly touched down on it on the material transparency portion. And, you know, obviously the IWBI, the International Wellbuilding Institute, where uh, I'm also talk about, uh, you know, never say uh, when it's enough. I'm also faculty with them and, and teach uh, their stuff globally as well. But they realized how many trillions of dollars of built environment that we had and we weren't considerate of, of people in it. And what do we do to make, make those facilities more well? So I'm going to hand the floor back to you, pal. It's interesting because, you know, the, the, the well-building standard is beautifully designed. In fact, I encourage everybody to go to the website and download, you can download it for free and, and just read through it. It's an elegantly done look at how to really reframe the discussions around health and wellness inside a building. And um, we, we recently had a project for a university. It was a student health center. And initially I was, um, you know, I was brought in to do kind of the sustainability kickoff early in the design. That's kind of what I do. And I was told going in, well, they want, you know, they want lead gold. So just show them how to do lead gold. And I thought, what a missed opportunity. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> This is a student health center. Let's talk about everything. And so, you know, the start of the day was, how do we get to lead gold? The end of the day was, we are going to make this the healthiest building on campus. Here's what this means for us. Here's what it means for the students in the building. Here's what it means for the staff in the building. Here's what it's going to mean for the rest of the campus. And instead of lead gold, because that doesn't apply here, we're going to go for well platinum. You know, that's, that's in a four-hour, really just discussion of, of fun questions of what do you want out of this building? Me just asking those kind of probing questions and realizing you're just doing lead gold because you were told to. Let's actually get something that you're excited about. And that galvanized that galvanized them. It galvanized the team. It got them very excited. Um, and, you know, frankly, got me excited too. But, but that idea of the healthiest building on campus, I love it because in one sense, great for the building, but also it's kind of... <laughs> It's kind of throwing down the gauntlet to the other buildings on campus. Like, hey, what are you going to do to catch up? You know, what a wonderful competition to put them in. And now we're discussing with them 
this kind of experimental thing, which is going to sound a little nuts when I talk about it, but what we realized is, is that there are things the architecture can do, the buildings can do, to trigger certain brain chemistries. And so we talked about this in a very serious way of, is there, are there things that we could do that could trigger serotonin in the brain to make people feel calm when they're in the waiting room? Things that they could, things that they could do to trigger endorphins when they're in the classroom to boost their immunity, trigger oxytocin to make them feel welcome at home, especially for the freshmen coming in every September, uh, trigger dopamine to make them feel motivated and help them study, or epinephrine just to help them increase focus. Like we know these brain chemistries can be triggered. We know what they do on, and the effect they have on us on the brain. A lot of people spend their lives or waste their lives chasing artificial versions of that. We could do it for real in the building and what would that even look like? And we're having those conversations in such an interesting way. And again, it's all experimental, but that's what's really getting me excited about health and wellness, that level of manipulation, for lack of a better word, of the people that enter our buildings. And I don't, you know, I'm going to give the floor back to you, but I don't really feel it's manipulation. I think it's, uh, in, you know, we'll touch down on biophilia in a second. I think it's really doing that connection, which a lot of times we didn't have consideration of before this wellness uh, trend moved moved into into place um, in, in really, you know, made itself be realized. Um, just circadian rhythm, just the, the, the right amount of natural daylight. If you can get some light that you're facing north, uh, you know, it's also energy efficient. We, we find that if we do these well projects, we're much easier to accomplish LEED certification as a result because we focused on water quality, we focused on air quality, we focused on activity, we focused on uh, making sure the materials are good for people. Um, and then we've touched down on the lifestyle attributes that also improve, uh, you know, people's lives and then give you all these positive things you just shared. Uh, right. You know, so wellness biophilia. Go, Eric. <laughs> we're, we're, we're working on a senior, a senior center for veterans. So it's a state it's a state run, you know, and funded building. But it's for veterans who, you know, serve, you know, serve the country and they're living out they're living out their days at this place. And we're 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 using color temperature of light that changes throughout the day to help reinforce the circadian rhythms because as they get older, their eyes diminish and they can't pick them up as well and that's why they have trouble sleeping. And so we start with colder temperatures in the morning. The temperature gradually warms up uh, uh, through the afternoon and then, um, and then cools down again at night. We have this, we have this interesting, I can't show you a picture because we're on audio, but but we have this wall base that essentially has this indirect light that's below the eye line, so that way uh, nurses can come into the room and administer medicines without turning on the lights and waking in the patient. There's, there's a slew of interesting, elegant things that we do that not only are beautiful in terms of the design, but also really improve the experience and quality of life um, for the occupants. And those are the things, honestly, just as a designer, get me excited more so than, oh, look, another glass box in California you know, and all the other crap that we normally, we normally build. Right. And, you know, um, my laptop has a, a circadian rhythm um, sensor in it, so it switches the backlight to make it less blue um, at, a, at a certain time. But I also got another piece of software that, that uh, actually modifies the backlight so that it takes it away from being blue 
starting very early in the afternoon and it makes that transition so casual so general you you don't see it and i just ordered two desk lamps um you know because of the pandemic in, in us working indoors so much more um right. and, and being outside less and not being in a in, in a typical office environment that actually promotes circadian rhythm there's uh 36 different light intensities and colors that this has and you can set it up attach it to you know the the regular rhythm outdoors uh you know for the time of day and it modifies the light level um as well as the light color to uh you know artificially support your circadian rhythm which is key 31 flavors of ice cream and yet you have 36 flavors of lighting that's impressive well, I don't have it yet. I ordered oh, it. it um, I'm, I'm really excited. I got notification it'll be delivered uh, later today, um, but I ordered it earlier in the week. And I've been looking for one of these because I had an old desk lamp that had either super bright LEDs or these really, uh, really dull amberish ones that were, that were you know, not a, not a good light at all. So the, it was just too contrasting, um, uh, you, you know, to, to choose one or the other. They were both they, they both had uh, negative attributes to them, I guess. Um, but, you know, let's let's uh, um, circle back to uh, a last thing. And, you know, I think we're getting better alignment with what we do. You know, we're certainly seeing more positive public stuff, uh, feedback on, on uh, when they see our projects and receive uh, those things. Um, and they're being more honest and, and there's more candor. Uh, when we have those dialogues, in in my feeling, um, are we are we moving there? Are we becoming more comprehensive? You know, is there something else that we were missing in the green building world? Now that we've encompassed uh, wellness and we've you know we've hit resource responsibility and and sustainability, uh, we we touched down on equity a little bit. Is there something else we're missing? Yeah, there's two, there's two things, and and the only reason why I have these so top of mind is because I am obsessed with them, <laughs> and 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 talking about them daily internally, uh, at at my firm. Um, <laughs> and the first the first one is is that we're still we're still we're still looking at sustainability as this thing, and probably uh, you know every director of sustainability at any at any company, let alone an architecture firm, but at any company will tell you. That they're probably always fighting this idea that sustainability is this thing over there, and and in truth, uh, I need to inject sustainability into every single thing that we do. So, you know, we have like we have a modular we have a modular design division at Canon Design. I got injected in there. We have um, a strategic change management consulting arm. I'm I we are injecting it in there. Um, we have a builder arm, you know, for design build pursuits. I'm inject injecting it in there. We have to really, on the, on the one hand, change <laughs> everything, and, uh, but not in a major way. Just just where it becomes a priority, and then um, uh, and then the second issue, and I think this is going to be the next great wave of of um, for sustainability is data. And we started getting there, uh, you know, as as a as a culture. And then the coronavirus kind of happened, but I, I I still think there's a need for it, which is buildings generate a lot of data, whether we measure it and manage it or not is is really up to us. But but in reality, there's a lot of things that could be measured and therefore quantified and therefore managed. 
and even monetized. And so the, the kind of big vision that I, that I kind of say to my team all the time just to, just to run ex thought experiments is, is there a way that we could produce enough data that, would be, that could be made anonymous but then monetized or sold to somebody or be of value to somebody where you could, um, I don't know, get your, get your office for free? <laughs> In other words, just like Facebook and Twitter are, quote, free because you are the customer, you know, you are the data, couldn't we essentially give people free spaces in exchange for the data they produce? And what would that, what would that look like? And could that, does that create more problems? Does it solve problems? I don't know. I mean, it's just a thought experiment. But, but I, think, um, I think data in a real sense is going to become the next great frontier for sustainability. You know, after, um, back when we were in offices, everybody would go to lunch around the same time. And around the same time, they would all come back from lunch. And as they would digest, their bodies would produce more CO2 because they were in, you know, um, digestion mode. And they would start breathing out more CO2. And the CO2 levels in a typical office by 2 or 3 p.m. end up becoming like around over 1,000 parts per million. And everybody gets sleepy. And they all blame it on their burrito. <laughs> they all blame it on, oh, I'm in a, oh, I got a food coma. That burrito <laughs> really took it out of me. And it's like, no, moron, you don't have a food coma. You're, you're, you're literally starving for oxygen and you're filling up your space with carbon dioxide and you can't breathe. And so a simple CO2 monitor for 40 bucks could essentially detect that and then kick on your, your HVAC system and flood your office with some fresh air and you'll perk up like a daisy in the sunshine and you'll be able to think again. You know, there's... Um, there's easy things like that that the data would really bring us opportunities to to incorporate that we're not quite at that level yet, but but we could be. I I have a great data story for you, and it it, it revolves around uh, a casino client of mine, a former client of mine, and you know we took data. They were just spending a, an atrocious amount of money on uh, on mechanical systems on fans. And, uh, and it was because they were in a cold climate and they were exchanging so much air from the outside with the smoky, nasty air from the inside because they allowed smoking within their casino, uh, deplorable practice. Um, and, you know, how do you improve it? Well, we, we went in and told them, if you change this, this, and this, mainly if you get rid of supply fans and exhaust fans and replace those with energy recovery ventilation, we're going to save you around 65 to 70% of the energy that you would otherwise waste. And, and you know, we, we did some data loggers on it and installed a couple of these in a, in a small location to start with. And that location became the favorite location for people to go and play because the air quality was better. Yeah, sure. They were more alert. And they were more willing to gamble. So, you know, the good and bad of that one is their their uh, revenue per square foot went up because the people who were there would stay longer. You know, they, they didn't they didn't get beat up by smoke and, and CO two. They had they had much better air quality. And the resultant thing is, you know, they switched to completely energy recovery ventilation for their whole facilities, separating the heating cooling function from the air exchange function. Um so, you know, and, and save them millions of dollars per year. And the so you know, so the data worked. The the only thing the only thing I would add to that is, um, you, you could sell that even better with a little showmanship of saying, 
how much would it be worth you to um, to cut your operating your HVAC operating costs by seventy percent and improve, you know, revenue per square foot? And they go, hmm. Like suddenly they're very interested. And then you go, well, let me show exactly. you how to do it. Like a little bit of PT Barnum is always a you know a, a little. And the other part of it is, is um, oftentimes we leave that on the table and forget to do the calc of that of that type of ROI. And so what I found one of the and this is a, probably a good, a good thing to close on, just as a, advice to everybody, is really find out what's important to them. What are the metrics that they're measuring to keep their job? And then really figure out how sustainability embraces that. Like in, in hospitality, for example, um, they use this very weird metric that nobody outside of hospitality has ever heard of called RevPAR, which is revenue per available room. And RevPAR makes or breaks <laughs> the, the hospitality industry. And I've got a list of things that will improve RevPAR. They're all sustainability related, of course. Some of them have to do with energy. Some of them have to do with health. Some of them have to do with operations. But they all boost the revenue per available room. And once I get speaking their language, what they care about, I'm, I have their full attention. And, if, and, and so my advice to everybody listening is find out what they care about. Speak in that language. Frame your mission or whatever it is you're interested in in, in in their language and you will have their undivided attention I think that's a really good place to close thanks pal speak their language find out what they need gain their attention and then come up with a, a really eloquent and comprehensive solution um, again Eric Corey Freed thank you for attending and, and sharing your time with our audience here on Build for Impact I'm Daniel Heward, your host for Build for Impact. Remember to send questions and comments uh, on this uh, episode and and what you'd like to see further. Um, Join us again soon for another episode of Build for Impact. Eric, have a great day, my friend. Thank you. Thank you.